This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Rebecca Mackay, who has a new novel. I have some questions for you. Earlier novels, The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, The Borrowers. There's also a collection of short stories, Music for Wartime. I have some questions for you. Well, I have some questions for you, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, of course, how all these start. This is a mystery, but there's a lot more going on here. I guess the place to start is the simple stuff, the mystery. So I take it you have a background in reading noir fiction and mysteries? No, not really. You know, I've read a few for sure. I have some favorites. You know, I, I love Laura Littman, Tana French. I've read Agatha Christie, but here and there, Walter Mosley, things like that. It's it's definitely not the bulk of what I read. Noir, no. I mean, I've read, I think, one Raymond Chandler. <laughs> Certainly, I love a good mystery, whether it's in real life or a movie or a book, but it's not using the comforts of genre, which I think is it, it's a wonderful thing when people read a mystery that's really a genre mystery. They're looking for the comforts of formula and predictability. Not, you know, you want to be surprised, but in a predictable way, right? And this is uh, not working exactly in that tradition. It is a traditional mystery in that there's a murder, and by the end, you know who did it. Well, there's a lot more going on in the genre than that. But one thing, when I talk to genre writers, Mm -hmm. and this is where I think there's a connection is that most genre writers realize that it's kind of like, um, I guess, uh, a clothesline in that you could hang whatever yes. you want from it mm-hmm. and you'll always come back. Oh, of course. Yeah. No. And when I say, you know, the comforts of genre, I'm not, I'm not implying that that is the only thing going on there, to be clear. But this is certainly working in that same model of, you know, we start with a murder. In this case, it has been solved already. It's just a a question of whether the right guy is in prison. And, you know, by the end it is solved. You know, this is not to say that I'm doing something loftier in any way than someone who writes, you know, a a series of mysteries or anything like that, simply that I'm not coming at it from that tradition. I'm coming at it from the tradition of chewier, clunkier, less, less, uh, predictable books, and then still really enjoying the delights of that genre at the same time. Let's go back then before that. Um, The previous novel was The Great Believers, Mm -hmm. and that was not a mystery. No, not at all. What prompted you to first think about doing a mystery? And the second part of that is You went to a uh, boarding high school, not this one, but to some degree, what brought that element to? Okay. So, yeah, to to be clear, I was was a day student at a high school that also had boarding students, and that was near Chicago. I'm writing about a very traditional boarding school in New Hampshire, but it is a setting that has intrigued me for a long time. I actually live on the campus of the school where my husband teaches a boarding school. So I know that world really well. Very much wanted to avoid writing about that for a long time because of the fear. It's very, very hard for people to understand that you're not writing autobiographically. People really want you to be. They want to see themselves in your work. They want to know what parts are true. And it's very hard to 
to, you know, especially when, you know, this is a first person narrator, it's a woman, she's my age, writing about a boarding school, but that's where the similarities end. Um, but I was very worried about people assuming more than that. But I was really tempted to to write something, you know, with that setting. It's a, it's a fascinating setting. The mystery part, you asked me two questions at once. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, the mystery part, I was not going, I want to write a murder mystery. I was becoming very interested in the past few years in the way we absorb and deal with true crime narratives. Uh, there's a, been a lot recently, a lot of people questioning why am I as drawn to stories of true crime as I am? In what ways can the genre be helpful? In what ways can you know podcasts and things like this be problematic? So that was something that was on my mind as well. And those two things came together in the book. That element, uh, you set the book in mostly in 2018, talking about the 90s mm-hmm. and going back and forth. The New Yorker Review Mm-hmm. which came out not too long ago, illuminated some elements. Now, when I read the book, it felt as if 2018 was a good bet because it's just before the pandemic mm-hmm. and people aren't wearing masks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sure. was my idea. But Kay Waldman in The New Yorker noticed something else, which is that that was the height of Me Too. Right. And that's why it was said. But from your perspective, Rebecca Mackay, which one? <laughs> yeah, what's the truth? Well, honestly, I mean, I started writing in the spring of 2019. At that point, I was setting it in kind of just the vague present. When COVID happened the next year, it became clear that I really needed to pick a year. And I decided at that point to stick it, you know, a bit in the past. I knew that by the end of the book, we'd need to leap forward a few years. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll put the beginning in 2018. I was dealing already by that point with some, you know, a Me Too plot line. So it made sense for it to be, uh, couldn't be too much earlier than 2018. And then I thought, oh, and I'll set the last part in 2022 when COVID will be surely completely over and I won't have to deal with the mask thing. And then it turned out, you know, long story, but turned out that I needed to stick masks on some characters, not all in 2022. But uh, that that was an adventure, you know, going through and putting masks on all of them and going, oh, no, I can take them off some of them because New Hampshire just lifted the mask mandate. Yeah, it was it was more I, I would say that the answer is, you know, you're both right. It was a product of when I started the book. I started the book in 2019. It was not the pandemic yet, so I wasn't writing that into it. And all this Me Too stuff was very fresh in my mind. It was still happening. And I, like everyone, especially you know, especially every woman, was looking back uh, with a very different lens and going, you know, yeah, the the it's not just the big obvious things. There are these little things too that, you know, things that happened in middle school or happened in the in college that I was very unsettled by at the time and didn't feel like I ought to be. Felt like I was supposed to be okay with it and it was my fault for being upset. And hold on a minute, I was I was right. And I think, you know, we were all doing that. That was the headspace I was in when I began the book. At what point did you realize that the main character, Bodie Kane, that her husband would be involved directly in a Me Too incident. I, I don't think there was a certain moment that I can I can go back to and say I had this revelation. But you know, I, I had her estranged from her husband. I needed a plot line for him, and these are the kinds of conversations that I have been having with 
friends within the literary world, within the art world, within the film world. There have been some examples of extreme, obviously bad behavior. And then there are some examples like you can all we can all point to the Aziz Ansari story, right, where a lot of people are going, wait, 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 this is this is not different. That sounds like a bad date. It sounds unpleasant for everybody. This doesn't cross a line for me. And I don't know that we should destroy right. this person's career. And there are just there were variations of that going on in, in many different spheres. I was having a lot of different conversations. These aren't the conversations you can have on Twitter because you got to come down one side or the other on Twitter. But in conversations with friends, these were the things we were talking about. And this is the kind of territory that a novel can explore because a novel can do nuance. And can ask questions without giving answers. Right, of course, yeah. Right. right. Or, you know, just ask complicated questions. Ask, you know, it can it can articulate the question. It can. Um, there might be some answers to be found and the reader might find some answers, but it's definitely not the job of the novel to come out with a... Um, a moral of the story. But it's also kind of the job of a novelist in this particular case to make sure there's a wee bit of satire in there as well. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, the Twitter stuff, it's like, it sounds like satire. And then you look into any anything like this that happens on Twitter and it's it's basically exactly what happens. <laughs> you know, you, you actually write it down in a novel and it feels like satire because it's you know, just people people putting their foot in their mouth or people overreacting or people underreacting or, you know, the accusations that fly. Satire sometimes works because of exaggeration. And sometimes it works because the because reality is so strange that simply writing it down becomes satire. And I think it's the, the latter here. Well, it's hard with people like George Santos around to write satire, right. even Saturday Night Live. Yes. Or even Saturday Night Live. Yeah. No, you notice recently, sometimes, I mean, the past six years or something, Saturday Night Live sometimes just literally... It's like reading a transcript of what actually happened, and that, right. that's all they can do. There's no way that you can, <laughs> there's no way that you can exaggerate it. Well, in this particular case, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but in this case, it's a um, an artist who is herself kind of an exaggeration, but maybe not. I don't think she is. Really, I don't think she is. No. What I'll, here's what I'll say, and this is for anyone who hasn't read the book yet. This is this. Bodhi, my main character's husband, is an artist. Her ex-husband is an artist. And this woman uh, kind of outing him for a, a, basically a past bad relationship is also an artist. If this exact thing played out this exact way on Twitter, I would believe it. I'll say that. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get back to the book itself. I have some questions for you. The character of Bodhi, when you were working on it, on that character and having things be seen through her eyes. What kept coming up to me is that she's a mostly reliable narrator, but she isn't a completely reliable narrator. I think she is. She is very aware of her own questionable motivations. She questions her memory constantly. She questions her subconscious. She questions why she's dreaming what she's dreaming which makes you aware of the fallibility of memory, of, you know, how we're not completely aware of our motivations always. But I would argue she's being significantly more reliable than most narrators, because most narrators will tell you, this is exactly what I remember, and it happened literally exactly this way. Even though it was 30 years ago, I'm going to give you nine pages of detailed chronological memory. And here's the one reason I had for doing the thing that I did. 
she is self-consciously questioning all of that, which of course makes us question it too, but she is being as honest as she possibly can be. Do you understand why I would look and go, well, is she a reliable narrator? Well, I mean, you could read something into it and, and take any passage and say, right. I have a secret theory that she's somehow lying, but you could do that to any book. But in this particular case, it's the way her memory unravels. Sure. It unravels in a particular way because she's, quote, talking to a particular yeah. character as yeah. you, mm -hmm. that she is not fully revelatory until she's ready to be revelatory. Sure, 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 sure. Yes. No, and that's, that's the, that is something in it. it you know, that she's not talking to the reader. She's talking to, thinking this all. Um, at this music teacher who uh, she thinks might, you know, and, and that's not too much of a spoiler. Well, um, it actually kind of is. You think so? Yeah, because, okay, so I'm the reader, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm the reader. And it starts out she's talking to me, mm. and then it becomes clear she's talking to mm -hmm. somebody else. Mm -hmm. We won't name that person. Yeah. But we don't know at that point if she's talking to that person in a confrontation. Oh, for sure. Yes, that's we, true. Or for all we know, he has kidnapped her. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that you could read it that way. That's true. I mean, this yeah. is the serendipity of being a writer is that you don't necessarily know yeah. what the reader will be thinking. No, you're right. You're right. And I, you know, I do think she's, she's pretty forthcoming. There's a little bit of her, like you said, waiting to, to reveal certain things until she's ready or slowly remembering things. And, and late in the book, and this is not a spoiler, there's, there's a certain thing where she starts to tell about it and then says, I don't really want to tell you about this. I mean, I just think it's kind of fun to push back on the unreliable narrator diagnosis, if only because I think that no narrator can be reliable. And this narrator is drawing attention to her own uncertainty. But I think that is an honest thing to do. Rebecca Mackay, let's move on to a couple of other elements. The death, the murder of Thalia Keith, mm -hmm. the uh, senior in high school. This beautiful woman mm -hmm. is killed mm -hmm. and a black young man who is an athletic director of some kind is charged with murder. He goes mm -hmm. to prison, but maybe he didn't do it. And that starts the trend because Bodhi knows more than the others. And she's been working on this podcast. Mm -hmm. The story of Thalia Keith, is that specifically generated from something you read in newspapers? or No, podcasts? not at all. Not no, at all. No, no. I mean, I, I pay attention to a lot of reporting on on crime but no I, I don't I don't borrow from real life certainly I live in the world so everything comes from something but um, I find it very limiting to work from something that really happened or a person who really existed I have tried at various times and I can't do it so no this is entirely sui generis she is herself yeah did you chart out the specifics of that evening at a certain point? Early on, I would think. Yes, I did. I needed a, a very specific timeline. I needed to know exactly how far buildings were away from each other. I needed to know, you know, what point different people had checked in different places on campus in order to make this all work. And certainly some things changed as I went. You know, I had a working timeline and a working map. You know, I charted out so much of this. And of course, that can change. It can evolve as I... 
um, as I edit, as I realize I need something different. But it was important that I knew from the beginning what had happened. So I built a build a book around that. So when you started, even before you wrote a word, you had that charted at? No, not before I wrote a word, but at, at some point early on. There's a sequence through the book of 10 little vignettes of each of the possible suspects. Uh, what prompted you to put that in there? Yeah. And also, when you put it in, did you know who it was? I did. I already knew at that point, yes. So basically, Bodhi is making herself go in and imagine, starting with Omar Evans, who's in prison, okay, if Omar did this, what would that look like? What would that evening look like? Can I imagine it? And moving from there into other viable or unviable suspects, she even goes into what if I did it myself and I forgot or I, you know, blocked it, which of course she knows isn't real. I originally had those all together in the middle of the book. I originally had part one of the book and then this middle section that was just all of these scenarios. And then part three, uh, which is now part two, didn't work that way. She needed to be thinking these all the way through. There's also a recurring almost like a a fugue that goes through it of then there was this girl who, right. then there was this boy who, and you do it with both Me Too movement and you do it with true crime. Right. Where did that come from and how was that inserted into the book? Right. So the, the genesis of that was that I really wanted there to be a news story that was affecting Bodhi as she came back to campus and... It just, you know, threw her off in the way that we get involved in a certain news story, certain ones really capture us. And I did not want to assign a real news story in this role. I didn't want to say, oh, it's the Christine Blasey Ford testimony and then not be able to give it its due. I also didn't want to make one up and have to steal details and attention and, you know, distract you from the main case. So I decided, faced with the impossible, and I decided that she was going to insist that it was all of them at once. It was, it was the one with the Senator and the one with the newscaster and the one with the swimmer. Obviously she doesn't really mean it. She obviously, she's saying, let's say, right. She's open about the fact that she's just jamming these all together. I did that one time and then went, okay, I I like this. I think this can be a motif. It, It needs to change. It cannot just be hitting that same note again and again. So there are lists of other kinds of things related to that throughout the book, but there's this ongoing sense of overwhelm of, you know, there are so many of these cases. They're all so similar. Certain ones might stick out, but the others are just white noise at a certain point. This one other element that Katie Wallman talked about was the fact that podcasts often address you and the book addresses you. Was that conscious on your part? No, not really. Okay. No. I do think that a good review picks up on things you do subconsciously, which is fantastic. <laughs> and I, you know, I do think there was something, there's something about the direct address, the intimacy of that. I, I think it's, it's probably, it's one of the reasons it felt right to me, um, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate that myself. One other part of this, which is a technical thing, and maybe it's not conscious on your part, but when I read a book that's page turner, that wants me to keep going. And I've interviewed a lot of authors who do that. Is there some trick to it? Yeah, there are many tricks to it. Yeah, absolutely. Not cheap as in a cheap trick, right? You constantly need to have something up in the air. You can't put out all your fires. 
You need to be very clear in what characters want or need or fear. And you got to kind of Scheherazade it or there's always, you know, something new. I taught elementary school for 12 years uh, up until right after my first novel came out. And these were most, for the most of my time, it was, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth graders. I would read aloud to them every day, the end of the day for half an hour. But you get just absolute immediate feedback when they are bored. And they, you know, they'd start rolling around on the floor. They, they do not hide it very well. And I would learn to, you know, even with wonderful children's books, I'd have to skip certain sections or, you know, paraphrase, summarize. I could not have asked for a better literary training. Really? Yeah. Just this, you know, daily for 12 years, every weekday for 12 years, feedback on what captures your attention. What do you understand? What's boring to you? What, you know... I'm not writing children's literature, but the, the lessons absolutely hold. And where would I break off, you know, to keep them interested for the next day? Where would I stop reading and say, oh, we'll read more tomorrow? And you, ideally, you want to stop at a place where they go, no, nah, don't stop there. There's, of course, a, a subtler version of that going on in adult fiction. But I have a, I think a, I really internalized a sense of what holds people's attention. Well, you mentioned before that this a lot going on. Does that mean that you're writing out all of these different elements that are being thrown in the air? No, not necessarily. But there, okay. there is a lot of retroactive outlining uh, as you prepare to do structural revisions. And at that point, yes, I, I might, you know, on, you know, might be writing down each scene on a note card in order to, you know, pace, space them out on my floor. And I might be writing down in each of those, what what are the stakes here? What uh, What's the cause and effect? What previous scene caused this one to happen? And what scene does this one cause to happen? So I, I certainly, especially in places where I feel like it's not working, I'd be puzzling that all out. The subject of misogyny comes up in the book quite a bit. And the boys are not exactly nice. Some One of are. them in particular, who we never find out what happens to him mm -hmm. just as well. Yeah. Was that your experience in high school, in the boarding school at all? Absolutely. And middle school okay. and college. Yeah. You know, it might be 5% of the boys you go to school with, but that is enough to make your life miserable. As you know, any woman who, who went to school, especially at that time, I think it's gotten in some ways a little better not necessarily everywhere. Um, but no, absolutely. There's always someone who's going to do that. The, at the same time, you know, it was important to me. There are people, she has a close male friend who is a wonderful person from high school. There are examples of, of men who are, who are lovely, but you know, the person who's going to get in your face and harass you. Yes. Many of them everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. In 2018, Donald Trump was president. He even <laughs> hates saying that. I know. I notice in the book that while there's a lot of talk about Me Too, there's a lot of talk about podcasts, there is, in fact, one character who's a progressive. You deliberately seem to leave out, or was that deliberate, to leave out the fact that we weren't getting sleep? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, might have been one, more, one too many thing to, to put in here. I think there are a couple of references, but... Yeah, you know, it's it's something that could have been a much bigger part of the book. I certainly was, you know, a rough time in in my life as as you know, just the the distraction. You know, the, in the way that so many of us might not have been 
you know, immediately affected, uh, right. but, but we're just, you know, horrified and distracted those entire four years. There are a few references, but it's a little bit of, yeah, you know, I, I stopped, I stopped, you know, listening to NPR even during that time. Cause I was afraid that if I turned on the radio in my car, I'd hear that voice. And there was a little bit of just not wanting to invite that into the novel either. Developing characters and the serendipity that comes along that surprises you when you're writing were there elements of that? And if so, what were they? Yeah, um, there are certain characters who just, you know, kind of announce themselves wonderfully. I'll say without giving too much away, I was referencing Bodhi's good male high school friend, Jeff. He was someone who, especially what happens later when she reconnects with him, that wasn't in the original plan. Other characters who you just kind of watch them take a turn. You you know, thought you thought they were going to be one way and it, it turns out that they want to be another way. You have to stay open to that. You know, you need a steady hand on the on the wheel, but you also need to stay open to surprise. How much of that do you think is kind of almost like channeling something coming up and how much is conscious? It's both, right? It's it's the same way that, you know, you when you dream, everyone you dream is a product of your imagination. They're all right. you, right? And a, a psychiatrist would say they're all you. But when you dream, you don't just, you don't think I'm going to have this person say this now. It just kind of happens. And when you're really in the zone in writing, that something similar occurs. You still need to course correct if that's not at all what, right. what you want. And the other thing is, especially I think for early writers, your characters are going to want to avoid conflict because we have, have all been trained in conflict avoidance. And so you're going to have characters who, you know, you just, they want to leave the room. They want to go be happy and you can't let them do that. You can't always listen to what they want to do because if what they want to do is take all the air out of the story. That's not very helpful. And when you're talking about what they want to do, what that really means is based upon everything that you have created in the character. Of course. A character is going to have certain desires, let's right. say, by virtue of what you've created. Right, right. They have a certain background. They have certain tendencies. They have certain predilections. And they are going to, uh, you know, you need to know in every scene as well as overall what they want. This is something that I see a lot on television, and I'm just curious how you respond to it. Frequently, a lot now, we see somebody confront someone else. What do you think of whatever? Where? And then cut. And we uh, never see huh? an answer. Yeah. For you as a writer working in with those kinds of conflicts, how do you deal with them? Do you want that next sentence or do you want to cut? Right. It's a very filmic thing. I, I, you know, I don't think that, I think that seems needy on the page, even needier than it would seem in film. Certainly you can cut a scene whenever you want to, but, but no, truncating right in the middle of a conversation and, and, you know, I'm not going to show you the rest. It feels like a very, um, a very, please don't change the channel during this commercial kind of move, you know, and, and we don't, we shouldn't be that in fiction. But you you know what I'm talking about. I do, so. absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's driving me nuts is the phrase, I've got you, I've got your back, you've got me. Uh, if you watch any show, uh, now that I've ruined your mind Oh my gosh, this, yeah, no, I'm going to notice it everywhere. You're going to hear it in almost everything. Amazing, yeah. It's, 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 it's showing you, right, they're announcing who has loyalty to whom, and yes, right. yeah, 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 amazing. <laughs> One final question, and then I want to ask a little bit about The Great Believers. Sure. Bodhi teaches film. In her classes, when she's talking, what is that relationship 
of those classes and what she's talking about to your own experience of film? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not as much of a film buff as she is. I'm not as much of a film buff as I want to be. So I actually needed to do a lot of research in order to write this. I watched a lot of documentaries about film history just to figure out what she'd be showing them. Honestly, I for me, I feel like we're living in a golden age of television. And I love a lot of what's on TV. And, and, and really, I am a snob about it. You know, I'm, I'm not liking, you know, sometimes it's very lowbrow stuff that I enjoy, of course, but I, I really, as a writer, very much admire the storytelling of a lot of TV right now. And because I have kids, because I'm very busy, I do a lot more watching of TV than movies. So I can't say I have too much in common with her on that. She's she's a much better film consumer than me. Rebecca Mackay, let's talk briefly about The Great Believers, which deals with AIDS yeah. and the history of AIDS. What is your relationship to that and your own history? Sure. I mean, you know, and this was my book that came out in 2018. I So I was born in 1978. So I was alive in Chicago in the 80s, which is the, the time and place I'm writing about. But I was seven in 1985 when the book starts. My, you know, my parents were not taking me down to those neighborhoods that I write about in the book. But it's something that certainly I've talked to other people born, you know, around the same time as me. We came of age with AIDS. We became aware of the world as the world was becoming aware of AIDS. You know, you're a kid and you watch the Oscars and that in memoriam reel, you get it. And and as a kid, you don't have an adult sense of dismissal. You don't have a sense of crises passing. We were all terrified of it. And, and I think maybe more empathetic, some of us than the adults around us. You know, I got older and I have, you know, I, I'm a writer who lives in a major city. I have an enormous number of queer friends. Some are HIV positive. So it's just, you know, something that is in my world. But it felt, um, for many reasons, felt like the thing that I wanted to write about. I was, I was quite intimidated to enter into that space as a straight woman who had been a kid at the time. But so it was a very research heavy book for that reason. And I'm, I'm very, it's, you know, being on tour for I Have Some Questions for You, it's actually really been wonderful to connect with readers of The Great Believers, who that's very often the reason people come to my event since this new book hasn't been out long. Um, it's I'm getting people in the signing line who want to talk about The Great Believers, and I, I'm all for it. One of the things that people in ACT UP we're saying at the time and continue to say is we're all living with AIDS, right? This is something that we live in a world that has AIDS, that uh, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you're tuned in or not, um, certainly I, th I think that's, that I identify with that, you know, thinking about my own childhood and that's, yeah, the, the, it felt like the biggest thing in the world when I was a kid and it, it right. in many ways was, but the kids were able to see it, you know, more clearly than some of our parents. Well, one of the th interesting elements of COVID is that gay people understood COVID better yes. than straight people. Absolutely. In several ways. I mean, the one, you know, I interviewed so many people and became very close to people for the Great Believers. And I was then checking in with them or we just, you know, saw each other or, you know, I guess no one was seeing each other, but, you know, <laughs> online in those early days. And for some people, major PTSD kicking in. For other people, kind of going, okay, we know how to do this. We, we, you know, yeah. um, you think about the the outbreak. I think it was the Delta variant that that really started in Provincetown. Right. Those men, 
they were like going to the CDC. They're like, okay, here's a chart of who was near whom and blah, blah, blah. Like they, they had this down. They knew how to do this, even though I think a lot of them were younger, but just that you learn it. Yeah. And they were so responsible about it. They were so forthright about it. I don't know that another community would have been. I was also getting texts though, you know, from friends saying, oh my God, if you told me 20 years ago that I'd be glad to see Anthony Fauci on the TV. <laughs> if you told me I'd be praying for Joe Biden to be the president, you know. <laughs> I will say also that something that, that else that was interesting with that book that came out in the U.S. in 2018, most of my translations came out in the summer of 2020 wow. in Europe, right? So people were reading this in lockdown in Italy and Poland and France, and they had a very different relationship with the book because of it. My interviews with journalists in those countries, of course, all over Zoom, because we'd all just discovered Zoom, <laughs> the interviews were all wanting to talk about parallels. And we talked about, well, we can compare and contrast, right? We, we don't need to draw any easy parallels here, but we know how we learned how to compare and contrast in high school. We know how to do this. Hearing from readers who um, had already read The Great Believers and then said, and these were younger readers usually, right. said, COVID helped me understand a little bit more the fear and the confusion that people would have been living with. So it was interesting. And well, in the U.S., at least for COVID, because it was everybody, uh, the response was not to ignore it. Right. And whereas the response of AIDS was, Very it different. doesn't exist. Right. And this is one reason that it's useful. That's the contrast part of compare and contrast, right? This is why we should look at them side by side, is to say, kind of like people were doing with Legionnaire's disease in the 80s and saying, right. oh, you have whatever it was, 17 people dead, and you're going to spend millions of dollars on Legionnaire's disease. But you have tens of thousands of people dead from AIDS, and you're not spent, you're spending, you know. Right barely anything on it. Yeah, to see to see a difference in community response, what happens when it's a disease that or a, a, that, that could theoretically affect anyone versus what happens when it is limited to a certain population, especially a marginalized population. Very different response. So we do want to look at these side by side, right? Not not to say, oh God, it's the same thing, but to to examine why how do why do we react the way we react in certain situations. Rebecca Mackay, in uh, the New York Times did a very strange interview with you. <laughs> this is about, and they ask questions about what's on your bedstand. Right, they do that. Yeah, every every issue of the New York Times book review, they ask the same questions. Yeah. However, this brings up your next book because you talked about reading for research, reading about Nazis, <laughs> and reading Goebbels, and trying to sleep at night. Reading about Goebbels, to be clear. Not reading him, reading about him. <laughs> what is this next book? You know, I can't tell you too much more than that, but I'll say that it is in in some ways, it, it is about the rise of Nazism in some ways. Uh, I, I think that right now in America, this is a useful time to think about complicity. And that is essentially, that is thematically what I'm writing about is what it means to be complicit uh, without ever having chosen to be. This is something that it concerns Germany in the 1930s. It's not a World War II book. It's not a Holocaust book, but it, it has to do with that, that time period. And uh, I was lucky enough to receive a Guggenheim Fellowship this last year, so I used that to travel to Germany and do some research as well. During the pandemic, what did you do? Just finish the book? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of it. Yeah, you know, I have kids, and so it was incompetent homeschooling, right? For the spring of 2020, we were very lucky that they went back to school that fall uh, with a lot of 
outdoor uh, activities. Yeah, I uh, had a lot of travel that was canceled that I would have otherwise been doing, which was probably a good thing for this book. And because I had residencies, you know, artist residencies where I would have gone to work, those were canceled. I ended up house sitting for a bunch of people instead and uh, just using their empty house to write in. And I guess you didn't have to go to New Hampshire because the weather came to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, I actually, I do, I do live in Vermont in the summer. Okay. So I know New England very well. I've gotten questions about why I didn't set it in Vermont. And the, honestly, the answer is the only boarding schools in Vermont are like six kids milking a goat on a mountaintop doing therapy. They're very, very different than the boarding schools of New Hampshire. So I, um, I but I do know that area very well. One final question, Rebecca Mackay. I went to IMDb and saw nothing. Uh, have your book? <laughs> it sounds book, like an insult. <laughs> have your books been optioned? They have actually. So my first novel, The Borrower, uh, was optioned for an indie film. I, you know, that's a uh, who knows. Um, but The Great Believers and I Have Some Questions for You have both been optioned much more recently for limited series television. Oh, great! And both of them are with very, very good teams. And, you know, that an option is just the first step, but, but there's a lot of real enthusiasm behind both of them and some real talent involved in both of them. So I'm, I'm, it, I feel like, you know, just sitting there on the dock with two lines in the water, feeling pretty optimistic, but who knows? So. Uh, do you, would you be ever want to be on a writer's team? I would, you know, yeah, the deal with both of those option deals is that, you know, down the road, I could choose to be in the writer's room. Uh, when it made sense to be, but it's a very different skill set. It's it's a different art form, and I I'd certainly have things to contribute, but I could never presume that I know that art form of of screenwriting, which these people have studied for years, and and I haven't. I've studied a very different form. Hollywood is a different beast, and there's things can get can you know the, the rug gets pulled out from under you at the last minute. There's money involved in very complicated ways. It makes book publishing look very stable and and like a great career choice in contrast. I've had students who come from screenwriting or playwriting partly to just go, let me have full control over something for a second. And also because of the limitations of, you know, I think they get tired of trying to make a story where you can't ever really tell what's inside someone's head. And, you know, then coming over to fiction and, and understanding the benefit of interiority, which is huge. It said on your website, Artistic Director of Story Studio Chicago. Yeah, yeah. What's that? It's a nonprofit writing center. So it's just writing education for everyone, middle school to adult, really beginner to really advanced, every genre, every length of class. It's turning 20 years old. I, I did not start it, but I've been artistic director for a while, and we do online stuff, in-person stuff, and we do community partnerships um, with places like Streetwise or uh, Illinois Prison Project. Is that for anybody in the country then? It is, absolutely, yeah. We, What's we could, the website? It's storystudiochicago.org. Before the pandemic, we could not sell an online class to save our lives. Now half of our classes are on Zoom, and we've got people all over the world, actually. I am teaching a class right now. I have Two students in Canada, one in the Philippines, and you know, all over the country in this one small class. So it's it's going great. You've been listening to an interview with Rebecca Mackay, whose latest novel is I Have Some Questions for You. We also talked about The Great Believers, which is out in trade paperback. Special thanks to the folks at Green Apple Books on the Park in San Francisco, where this interview was recorded.
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>